You're in tune to the Fusebox Radio Broadcast. Uh, turn the music up inside my session. These folks gotta hear my message. Bringing balanced black radio to the masses. All right, everybody. One, two, one, two. What's going on? You're now in tune to a special session of the syndicated worldwide Fusebox Radio Broadcast. Bringing the balance back to black radio each and every single week, whether it's via our commentary, music mixes, interviews, and more. We got a little bit of in more in stock right now with some panel audio from this year's AwesomeCon 2018 that was held at the Washington Convention Center here in our nation's capital and all of that. I was over there this Saturday getting in a lot of pictures, I'm talking to various folks and stuff like that. And I'm also, again, capturing some pretty cool audio from some of the panel action that went down. And this first panel was called The Future of Beer. It was held in conjunction with the Smithsonian Institution as a part of their FutureCon programming that was in the midst of everything that was happening with AwesomeCon. And for those who might be new to the show, um, I'm a craft beer drinker. We know a lot of folks who are into that type of thing and whatnot. And as one of those people, as well as a person who's interested in that industry and knowing that a bunch of black folks other folks of color are getting more into this on the recreational and business ends, I thought this would be a good panel to roll through and hit up. And they get into a whole lot of things in regards to the business, the actual literal future of beer, like one of the folks who is um, a beer historian with Smithsonian got into some things. We have some folks who are actually trying to craft beer for space and um, all other types of good stuff including people who are in the mix um, doing things in the business right now as um, independent um, brewers and stuff. So go on ahead and check out this audio, listen and enjoy. You can go to awesomecon.com for more information about what went down this year and the program that they have coming up next year. And for the Fusebox Radio broadcast, you can always check out what we do via our official website, fuseboxradio.com, F-U-S-E-B-O-X-R-A-D-O.com for show archives, our history, how to reach out to us for interviews, submitting music, uh, booking for upcoming events, whether it's on the DJ or speaker end, or plenty more. So let's get into this future beer panel from AwesomeCon 2018. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Alright, this is DJ Fusion. We're about to get into this mix of talk right here. Peace. I'm Chris a reporter about beer with the Washington Post, and I'm here with Teresa McCullough, who has possibly the coolest job in America as the Smithsonian's beer historian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also enjoyed uh, Richard's friends, Liz, who was the uh, author of a recent Smithsonian Magazine article on the future of beer in space and whether or not we will be, when we get to Mars, if we will be able to have beer there. <laughs> and finally, at the end, we have Kurt Kroll, who is the brewer of Manor Hill in Ellicott City. Uh, he's responsible for the robo-fuel beer that you all are hopefully enjoy. <laughs> all right, so I'm just gonna uh, throw out a quick question to the group here, just as a way to start. Um, so two years ago, I wrote a story for the Post that said there was never a better time to, in America to be a beer drinker in American history. And two years later, and 2,000 more breweries later, I think I can say that I was wrong, and this might be the best time <laughs> to be a beer drinker in American history, with the uh, emergence of new styles and, and the refinements of brewing. But at the same time, um, I'm sure we all saw the numbers from the Brewers Association this week that said, 
there are there more blues than ever. Craft beer growth is not really going as well as it has been the last couple of years. And so just to kind of start this, um, I'd like to ask each of you, what is the most exciting thing for you about beer and craft beer right now? And what's one thing that scares you? I'll take that first. Um, so as, as Fritz mentioned, my happy job is to collect the history of beer and brewing at the Smithsonian. I work at the National Museum of American History. And um, we're building an archive specifically related to the histories of home brewing and craft beer in America. And so um, I travel around the country, I meet brewers and growers and writers and all kinds of figures involved in this very dynamic industry. And what impresses me most, I would say, at the, at the moment, the stars are really kind of aligning between professional craft brewers, uh, brewing beer consumers, and also home brewers. The American Home Brewers Association counts 1.1 million home brewers in the country right now. How many home brewers do we have? So you have this very dynamic sector. You have craft brewers who are experimenting with all kinds of amazing uh, techniques and uh, ingredients and are finding a very eager public. Um, when Ken Grossman, who founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company in the late 1970s, when he brewed his pale ale, which is really considered this iconic beer today, it was considered so intensely bitter, far too hoppy for the American public. It was just so shocking. They really couldn't get rid of their beer. But that's what they wanted to drink, and then consumers came along. But now, suddenly, in this really amazing golden age of beer, you have brewers and eager consumers and home brewers who are all really fueling this, uh, this fantastic situation we have at the moment. Maybe I'll, I'll leave it on a positive note, and then we can come back to what, what scares us. <laughs> Well, the uh, most exciting part right now is we have no limitations. There's no sticking to a guideline. You can do a forward and throw whatever query you want, and it's going to turn your head the way it used to back in the day. Like, hop uh, stomps were a big thing a while ago, but now you can do it in a container. We're throwing a bunch of fruit. I've never even boysenberries before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something new to try, and that's the exciting part about what it is. It's, it's open. There's so many choices. Well, I don't know if I call it exciting, but it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, it's all the crap they throw at it in here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, because it goes from uh, people, a brewer, a little beer, throwing yeast in his own beard, and then they're culturing that and putting that entire product, or it's uh, stag semen. I uh, personally. Um, there's even this thing, uh, I just saw it, I slipped my, can't quite get my head around it, but this, um, this guy in Poland, a crowdfunding campaign to make beer out of vaginal bacteria. And, uh, so there's actually a, yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, part one of the raised two hundred thousand uh, dollars. The campaign he raised two thousand. Uh, not enough people were interested, but he picked it up and said, "For fifteen thousand dollars, you can make beer made out of well, this your girlfriend's uh, vaginal bacteria." Uh, and that never took off. So there are all kinds of uh, variations of 
here, I mean, if you look at Godfrey's ad, they, uh, you know, they made beer out of, um, what's that, what's that, or whatever, it was made out of, uh, in part, uh, meteorite dust, uh, which uh, is up to fermentation, and what I expect someday is that, you know, when you have these folk beers, and you're still looking a little more aspirated than that. So in terms of worrying, I think that's, that's a numbers game. But as, as Fritz mentioned, um, craft beer last year, the segment grew 5% by volume, but overall beer consumption in America stayed flat. You have 1,000 breweries open in America in 2017. It's truly an amazing number. Um, but uh, so you have this great growth in very small breweries. You have pressure from above, from the big breweries. We've been reading, attuned to beer news, you, you are very aware that um, very big multinational beer conglomerates are, are quite interested in the craft segment and, and looking to purchase uh, craft breweries. And so we have especially a very difficult story for uh, mid-sized regional breweries who are in the middle. They're kind of being squeezed from below, they're being squeezed from above. And uh, what this means for you as consumers or brewers is um, when you go to the store to purchase beer, perhaps you might see some of your favorite beers disappearing from shelves. Or when you go to the bar on the street, maybe uh, favorite regional breweries disappearing off of the, the lineup of taps, just because of all this jockeying that's happening uh, to a certain extent behind the scenes. And so I think there's a lot of, of questions about there about where where the future of beer is. There's a lot of talk about a, a craft bubble. Um, and so you know, at the moment, the the, the landscape is quite good, especially if you're a beer drinker, but if you're, if you're a brewer, um, there's a lot to think about.
So let's go to friends of the your story about fear in space, um, which I found very compelling for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that struck me when I was reading it is the great thing about fear is we all know what it is. It's water, malt, yeast, and hops. Um, and you know, Budweiser is weird, Dogfish Head is weird, and even when something like Not Your Father's or Beer uses similar ingredients, we know it's not really a beer as much as it wants to pretend it is one. Um, but now we hear about these UC Berkeley scientists who are able to genetically modify yeast to provide hoppy flavors to brew a beer without using hops at all. Um, we see people who are modifying who are modifying hops to try to get the flavors out of them. Um, but you know, when you can brew with a genetically modified yeast and no hops at all, um, do you think that with your when you were talking to people about the future? Do you think we'll see a time when what we call beer is no longer brewed in the traditional method? I think it will always, uh, always have a traditional base. Uh, how far out that goes is another question. Uh, you know, for decades now, there's, there's been sort of a novelty market in making um, beer and cancers, which is just sort of sometimes just dunked into the beer you have at hand to make it taste like some other beer or some other liquid. And I don't, I don't think beer will ever go away because there's always going to be that natural nature that there is movement. Uh, but I think the flavors themselves get farther and farther out there. Whether they'll circle back to traditional beer is another question. It's some of those things like I don't know, Valentine Ale and kind of really old taps, uh, they were basically undrinkable. Some of the beers I had. It's true, it's in my, my fridge at home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but some of the beers I had, you know, especially like space beers, they tasted sort of like, um, let's say, fun on a stick. So, Kurt, to go back to stuff, you to some things you were saying earlier about the, all the new trends we're seeing in beer and how you can't really rely on uh, or the chase, I would say, for the next big thing to try to get ahead of the curve. You make some interesting beers, like very tropical fruit follow. But at the same time, when I'm at a bar and I'm talking to beer directors and people, they always bring up your rosette, the uh, Manitoba rosette, which is a 19th century Belgian style. Mm -hmm. And well, so, what do you think the success of a beer like that, or the popularity of a beer like that, says about where we might be going? Well, I mean, that, that, that style I don't think ever really died off, save on kind of. Um, farmhouse picked up flavor. And uh, last year, Pilsen has made a major comeback. So we're doing a classic German style as well, and it's going to the place through that. And you have to have those base beers in your repertoire because you can't do those and fruit go in, you don't know what you're doing in your game. It's just beer because you have to be able to do each one to a certain style. It's just traditional, but put your own little flair in it, not some craziness. But people do need a basis to go back to. Change. I just had uh, hired here about two years ago almost, and 
I learned so much more about IPA today than I thought I would, and I've been doing it for almost a decade now. So. And what, just out of curiosity, out of the ratio, what percent of your, of your uh, beer drinkers, of the Manitoba drinkers, do you think are chasing these new flavors versus looking for the more traditional? Oh, a lot. Yeah, so when we, I mean, our, our IPAs are being sellers of the type of traditional. It's in clear doubt, it's not that big anymore. But we also do monster hazy IPA and fruit, but extra hops, bio transformation, which you'll never be able to do with such yeast. You might just throw the visual hops in. But you know, it just has to happen. We're, we're chasing both, both angles, and hopefully, we're doing it pretty well because I can't hurt the ice melting today. So. <laughs> Bruce, if you could just give us some historical context at this point. Has there ever been a period in American history that you compare to say the last five, ten years of craft brewing and the rise, tripling the number of breweries in America? Has there ever been a period like that before in our history? And what kind of lessons can we learn from? Sure. So, you, um, our, our current era of beer history is going to be known as the craft beer revolution, and it's, it's been called a revolution because it was a, real, uh, a response against big beer, the commodities big beer in the mid 20th century, what followed prohibition. Um, but the first brewing revolution that we commonly recognize in American brewing history happened uh, more than 100 years before that, and that came with this huge wave of German immigrants in the 19th century. And so at the very beginning of American history, we have Americans uh, brewing at home, drinking mostly English-style ales. But then uh, in the 1830s, 40s, and onward, we have uh, millions of immigrants who came over from Europe and brought very different brewing styles. A lager brewing technique. And so um, from 1830 to 1880s, we have, I would say, literally every sector of brewing and beer in America changed. Who was brewing? Suddenly you had immigrant German men who made brewing into a big business in America. You went from home production to professional production and to uh, large scale breweries. What beer tasted like changed. Again, you went from you know, the heavy, uh, stagnant style of ale to this very effervescent refreshing lagers. Americans were just very entranced by this new style that tasted quite different. Where you drank also changed in that in that span. You went from drinking at home to drinking at the saloon or perhaps at the beer garden. Uh, that was a very family-friendly option for the first time men and women and even kids could go and enjoy beer together at the time. Um, and then, you know, just the purpose of beer in American life changed during that era as well. It really it became something that was a, a kind of hallmark of the end of your day. If you worked in a factory, you earned a little bit of extra change, you wanted to spend it, relax at the end of the day, and that's that's the role that beer came to play in American life. So certainly that span of, I'd say, about two generations, uh, it really, it, you know, the beer totally transformed uh, in, in America. I think the lesson you can learn from that is that uh, American beer became great because of the many different kinds of people who fed into brewing culture that immigrants who came and had different techniques and different uh, flavor preferences and different ideas about how and where to consume beer, that all created uh, ultimately what became, I would argue, has been the world's greatest beer culture. And uh, countries around the world now take their cue from what Americans are brewing. And you see a similar kind of craft beer revolution happening in Japan and China and Italy and Brazil and elsewhere. And it really all started uh, at this point. You know, it's uh, actually one thing that you point to the beer ever go away. Well, um, you know, traditional Germany has always uh, has been kind of, I don't know, maybe a low-lying beer in a way. And then 
for Brewery, Steve Quinn, uh, and Dr. Kitt put out their own hoses. Uh, the newest one, which is the hottest selling actually, Dr. Kitt has is uh, Sequence, which is uh, sea salt and uh, black lime and lime. And so it sort of come up, sort of tricked, tricked up a goza come around. And this is new variation, so I don't think they go away as much as evolving and evolve into something else. So I'm going to jump back to the uh, space, to space again, future things. But um, one of the things, that, another thing that left out of your story was the automated brewing intelligence. Um, and for the crowd, this is basically an algorithm that they use after you try the beer and you ask a series of questions to determine how much you like it. The information gets sent back to the brewer and then they can tweak the recipe from there. I think that's kind of the, the basic gist of it. And, you know, if you go by what beer advocate rated on their website, they're, they're the, most high, the most highly rated, highly popular beers. They all tend to be bourbon barrel stouts and imperial IPAs. I'm just kind of curious what you think the future of this artificial intelligence is and how it might shape what we want or what we think we want to drink in the future. Well, uh, I'll go back to one of your earlier things about um, the danger and creepiness of some of these beers. Since this is basically had, at least uh, in the beginning, no uh, input from humans. And, uh, it, it brought to mind, I think my answer was answer that uh, Google, a little bit off the fact that Google uh, stores your location. Every time you turn on the phone, you can see a timeline of where you've been from the very first day you started using Google on your phone. Google also knows everything you've ever searched for and deleted is stored in Google. Uh, Google stores search histories across all your devices. That can mean even if you delete your search history and phone history on one device, you may still have saved data saved from other devices. Google has an, an advertising profile view and that it creates an advertising profile based on your information, including your location, gender, age, hobbies, career, interests, relationship status, possible weight, and income. They also know all the apps you've used, all your YouTube history. Uh, they access your webcam and microphone, knows which events you attended and when, and uh, Google stores all the information you thought you deleted. So, you know, when people wonder if, uh, you know, like a Roomba making beer, is going to be a threat to their beer drinking. I would personally be more concerned about Google than automated <laughs> device. But what I think will happen is that right now the beers are pretty flat in the way, uh, and they've got no real character because it's just sort of a conglomeration of other beers and people's ideas of what they want without actually sort of tasting it. And uh, that puts it a little behind it. You're, you're talking about the beers, the beers that are brewed with the artificial intelligence. Right, the API, whatever you want to call it. 
So at this point, it's so early, uh, there's really no distinctive flavor. I mean, they're bespoke beers, they're made for individuals, but still they have no distinctive character. And uh, I think that we ever get to the point, uh, and this again depends on the execution of the Brewmeister, that um, you know they are something different, then it could possibly take beer and breweries in a new direction. But at this point, we're really in the products. Kurt, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what um, artificial intelligence recommendations um, that are coming from computers and algorithms. You know, one of the things that I always hear when I talk to brewers, and I just had one tell me this week, is we brew the kind of beer we want to drink. It's kind of a mantra for craft beer guys. Would you be comfortable taking advice from a computer algorithm about what your next beer should be? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is a business, and um, sales are the main drive for every brewery. You brew a beer that, I mean, you brew it you want to drink, but sometimes nobody else wants to drink it. <laughs> I mean, there's, I, I mean, it, it takes a lot of finesse and human drive or like, control. I don't think software will ever get to that point because nobody will let, you know, press on pause and then let this program write a, a recipe for them because everybody wants to have their own little flavor and put their own opinion. I like having to do all the rest and all that stuff, but I don't see that taking off very much. Thing for every brewer saying this is the part of me, I'm going to do. We all heard this in IPA, but this one's a little different because I did it this way, or this other brewery did it that way. And I don't know if the software will ever match that kind of effect. So, just to the point of high tech innovation or aspirations related to beer, um, I was looking at a Wall Street Journal article from 1960. The other week, and um, there, there was a, a mention of breweries' attempts to cut transportation costs by coming up with an instant beer tablet. And the idea was that they would sell these tablets to consumers, and they would pop it in a, a glass of carbonated water at home, and uh, suddenly you would have your, your instant beer. And, and clearly, that never came to fruition. Like maybe just a tasting disgusting. <laughs> attempts in all areas to uh, to think about you know really kind of bizarre uh, bizarre bizarre methods to make American beer better. Chris, to follow up with you again, um, so one of the things that I always hear from brewers these days, though, is you could be making the best beer in the world, but that doesn't matter if you can't get it in front of people. Nobody's drinking it. Um, I always go back to the story that uh, when we were talking about so the beer that won the best American IPA of brown tasting at the uh, Great American Beer Conference last year, it's called Prairie Madness from Hailstone Brewery in Illinois. I still have never met anyone who tried it. But in a blind tasting of the biggest category of hundreds of beers, it was the best IPA in America. So I'm, I'm curious for you, what are some of the challenges um, that you're facing getting beer in front of people, and how could that shape what you what you brew in the future? Well, um, I mean, it, it all depends on the size of the brewery alone first. I mean, we only distribute in Maryland and a little bit of D.C. So unless, I mean, the easiest part about beer is making it. The hardest part is selling it. <laughs> it's, 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 that, it's that simple. I mean, you can do the greatest idea that will never reach the GAF, never be judged. But if it doesn't go farther, or enough, enough people haven't heard of it, I mean, there are 
countrywide trade where people send boxes to California, send stuff from California over here. That's a big trade with like black market kind of thing. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it's just all these bodies really popping up are very, very small and they will not get out very far. You'll never hear a happy group and never time. And that's, that's the, the one thing about this new craft business because they're all small. And a lot of these places are getting too small to be big and some of them are too big to be small. And it's just getting, getting out, just like these people and moving up past where you can try and go play. Every time I go to a different state, the first place I look for is a group. Just to, just to see what they're, what they're doing and how they're doing it. And that's the only way I'll know about it because you have to travel so distribution has been, to Chris has been a big deal currently. Uh, we've seen a number of states like Maryland who are cutting back, um, putting new onerous kind of law uh, regulations on birds that want to distribute. Maryland, and we're seeing new states like Georgia who decide that you can now buy bird birds, which is a novel concept. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the trends that we've seen at least going back to for wildlife kind of distribution going back to Georgia? So in the lead up to prohibition, as I mentioned, saloon culture was uh, very prominent in American life. Uh, you had, as uh, millions of immigrants who came to America, making workers, and they wanted to go to saloons at the end of the day. And so suddenly you have saloons on virtually, it seems like, every street corner in America. In the lead up to prohibition, 80% of those saloons were tied to breweries. That means that breweries directly sponsored saloons and sold their beer in those saloons, and they also supplied the, the the furnishings, the ornamentation, the trays that beer might have been served onto. And uh, as temperance advocates and other groups uh, tried to lobby for prohibition, they really wanted to break up this kind of relationship between saloon culture and breweries and how beer got to consumers. They wanted to make it more difficult. And so after prohibition, there was this innovation to uh, break up what was essentially this straight line between beer and the consumer. And so uh, you have a, a very complicated patchwork system in terms of how how beer gets to you, whether you want to buy beer in a store, whether you want to um, buy beer from a brewery, there are laws in, in, uh, throughout the country. And so, actually, it's a legacy of prohibition, uh, the, the very patchwork nature of where and how and when you can buy alcohol throughout the country. And so, let's talk a little bit about competition for beer. Um, at last year's Craft Brewers Conference, the Brewers Association director, Paul Gatza, talk specifically about the threat that the legalization of marijuana might pose for beer. Uh, and the idea that people might shift away, should shift from uh, measured beer drinking to measured marijuana smoking. And then we've also seen uh, market studies that say millennials are drinking less beer and more wine and spirits. Um, what do you think about these kind of shifting attitudes and where could that take us in the well, that's it. Um, you know, going back to that, Budweiser uh, was wrong in number one doing something. Now, I'd like to say, Bud Light, Coors Light, Miller Light. I always said Coors Light. I'm done with Bud Light. I like, you know, Budweiser comes from a check beer. Wiser and uh, vodka, um, and uh, it tastes nothing like it. Right? And they uh, they refused. In fact, Budweiser tried to buy Budweiser, in fact, about seven million bucks, 
and be kind. And I think uh, what people always liked about Budweiser is sort of its blandness, cuteness, its ability to know exactly what you're getting in, you know, if you want to hear taste like this or whatever. But uh, it's, uh, it doesn't have that sense of adventure that craft beer does. Now, craft beer, I don't, you know, this is, I guess, that is it uh, less than 20 percent, 13 percent of uh, beer sold in this country is, is craft beer. I think it may, people in the industry, I think it may creep up to 20 at some point, but you get, you know, the, the behemoths like Coors, Hawaii, or whatever, um, are selling this known product to uh, the majority of the population. It's sort of like, um, you know, people moving into developments. They know exactly what they're getting. And the houses, you can even buy a house that's exactly like the one you left. And there's, uh, there's no effort put into it, and there's no challenge to it. So, um, <laughs> I'm just, no, I'm just curious about whether, what are we think, you know, the increased competition, are people going to turn away from beer in, in search of other recreational drugs or recreational beverages? Well, I think, uh, I, mean, I think, you know, the trend is going up still with craft beer, and while it, you know, it is exactly plummeting or falling with limits, uh, uh, you know, find some kind of middle ground. Because even when marijuana was illegal, believe it or not, uh, people were drinking it. Yeah. Anecdotally, my research, you know, I, I, I have asked Bruce this question, especially my trips to Colorado. You know, what I've heard is if, if people drink beer, they're going to drink beer. If they want to smoke, they're going to smoke. You know, they see it as kind of uh, separate realms, perhaps complementary in some senses, but not directly competitive. But Kurt probably could answer this better. People can get marijuana illegally. They're going to get it legal now. They're going to get it second. It's just easy to get. People are, they want to smoke weed, they'll smoke weed. That won't affect beer drinking. I don't think at all because, you know, it's accessible, but it's easier to get now. Have you ever tried to have marijuana flavored beer? Lagunitas, Lagunitas did one last year that was actually flavored with THC crystals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a. It was. It was very dank. <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in the early nineties, there was a brewery. Okay, who did it? They did a hemp beer, and apparently, they never brewed it again. Hacks is doing it right now. Oh, are they doing it right now? Yeah, I read an article about it this morning. <laughs> I think the problem is teaching the factory workers in the factory. <laughs> so before we uh, open the floor to audience questions, just want to have uh, one last joke for each of you. What were you drinking craft beer wise or beer wise five years ago? What are you drinking now, and what do you think you'll be drinking in the future? If, if the sky was the limit. Well, uh, five years ago, I mean, I worked for Bruce, so I was drinking stuff I was <laughs> um, Let's just say I started 
crap period in like 
Um, so this the snow keystone thing is is, is amusing. Um, the idea that they changed the marketing on the cans of keystone to just say stone. I don't really know anyone who confused those two, but I, I, I understand the trademark the trademark issue with that. Um, but the idea that you confuse those to so like you know, put stone with a gargoyle versus keystone with no flavor. Um, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Um, but I think that's also something we're gonna see a lot more of in terms of um, trademark and copyright with, in terms of beer. For example, I don't know how people know that Denizens Brewing in Silver Spring was originally going to be named Citizen Brewing, um, but they got a friendly cease and desist from DC Brown, whose flagship beer is Citizen. Um, so I think it's just one of those things where we're going to have to see a lot more kind of collaboration rather than litigation. I don't want to um, in terms of breweries for a crawl, I mean, right now, if you can get a designated driver and head out and uh, head out to uh, Loudoun County, that's basically my favorite thing to do. Um, if I can, uh, you know, make my way to Ocelot and Solace and Crooked Run and then maybe all the way up to Great Theory in Purcellville, I can do that in one afternoon. That's fantastic. Um, in DC, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to do Hellbender and White Proper and DC Brow and Two Stars in an afternoon. I would start with the flavor of Mulo, which is completely delicious. Hi, my name is Mary. I'm actually working in the bar to work on about the future of beer. For those of us who want to get into the business, whether you like your business and stuff like that, one of the best ways to connect with people like would be asking breweries and can I do an apprenticeship under you or uh, doing things that have that like practical doing proper classes and print. I was just amazed that people can just do that as well. Helping us get into the business, especially folks who are women and you know other folks who don't necessarily are looked at as people that can like beer. Um, if you can find a brewery that would like to volunteer or work part time, I would make friends with the brewery first. I mean, I, that's how I did it. I just knew somebody got a, got a brewery and tell me, and there are schools you can go to, and they're not cheap. But you can do that, and then um, you'll still have to search for a job, and it's not that easy. There are a lot of breweries out there now, but then they don't need that many people. But I, I would just try to make friends. That place you want to connect with. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's a lot of physical work, so it's just if you're willing to do it, and people need something, person who learns, who learns, will learn. I guess just have a resume ready. Go on, um, I guess it's Pro Brewer, see what job app uh, they're out there, and just try an interview, and hopefully they'll like hire you, and you can learn. I learned on the job a lot of professional stuff. I didn't get to do a beer taster. I thought mine. Everybody has to go back to the bar and try everything. I'm glad to hear you mention short period. Getting off the short period, I would also say trying to get the environment of the 20th last month at Wilson, near where I live. But my actual question is there's a lot of things, you know, what I classify as recreational drinking, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic. There's really a thing of customization. I can order my whiskey sour a hundred different ways, 
Uh, I can go to Starbucks with a whole scene and you got mail where Tom Hanks talks about making eight decisions in 30 seconds to get coffee. But you don't really get that in here. You pretty much drink what comes out of the tap when you can, you can sometimes get one for over another or get two drinks mixed. You think we're ever going to see uh, like a cocktail culture around beer like there is around alcohol or around coffee? I've seen some barbecue at Starbucks, but uh, it's like cocktails just like. Just mixing two things with a corset. Oh, uh, I had a guy do a smoked beer with uh, drambuie and it didn't make it taste like a barbecue meal. I mean, it just depends on the bar. You can, I've seen a lot of places try and do that because they're just trying to do a new thing, bring new people. But I mean, I always went to a bar and tried to mix two different flavors together, like a round of an IPA just to see what would happen. It's just knowing whoever's running the bar is going to want to do it or not. It might also depend on how far the line is along. I know you all talked earlier about marijuana um, versus beer and anything related to marijuana, but I recently heard a report about a um, brewery similarly from out of Colorado that's actually creating and staging marijuana. And using that instead of alcohol to try to formulate it to get the same effect of alcohol without any adverse effects. And then you're talking about yeast that could be altered to get the hop flavor. So, I mean, are there two different things that you take right out of the equation? Are your thoughts on that similar to the other marijuana and beers that you talked about? Or what were the ideas about that being your thoughts on that? I'm not a brewer, but when I read about this, um, these modified or yeast or bacteria to function as hops. Um, you know, one question that a reader poses about them in Finland is that hops serves other purposes you know, aside from flavoring. It's a preservative. And so I think the question is what, what else does alcohol do in a beer that's not just a beer feel? You know, there, there are other impacts that are kind of structural. And, and, and so that, that's just my question. And I'm sure the brewer would probably speak to that. success stories in, in craft beer is Nuclearis from Wisconsin, and they have the highest penetration of any craft beer in the state. 
they, they, they are one of the biggest brewers in the country and they don't go outside of Wisconsin. But I mean, one of the things that you see with that, and you see with um, Virginia and D.C., every state, with the exception of Washington, D.C. is a little every state makes the decision about what beers are going to be allowed to be sold there. And, and that, to me, is kind of a tenuous, a, a tenuous thing to begin with. Like, why would you allow beers, one brewery, to come in and not another? Um, but I'm sure Teresa can talk about, can talk about that. I've been surprised too, is that the, to um, the previous person's uh, question, but I, I've been surprised the extent to which politics is very much a part of brewing. And you have all of you, many stories of brewers, uh, many stories of brewers who have, have had to become um, actors in a certain sense to, to make, certain, um, make certain actions possible, whether it's selling directly to consumers or in the brew shop legal industry. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Politics, every state's different. Who's in the back? Someone kept the party and declared it's international level. And this last question. Uh, I guess it's more about the consumer behavior uh, in terms of the country. So, uh, you know, open behavior laws, raising from age 21. And, you know, as I, when I was in Beijing, I bought a beer from WC. Uh, what's the future for buying beers and consuming beers? Pennsylvania used to sell case only when they went to 12 packs and then buy six packs and buy individual bottles and that's what everybody for that type of beer. So it just depends on the state. Louisiana, you drive through the back shack after checking as long as you put a little uh, paper top on the straw, you're not drinking it. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the things that I'm intrigued about, um, at least in terms of a legal aspect or, or um, a, a government enforcement aspect, is going to be the rise of tap walls. I don't know if I'm familiar with these, but these are basically bars where you go in and you pour your own beer, and you use you use like a credit card, you swipe it, and it charges you for every beer that you can pick from dozens of taps on the wall, because no bartender totally cuts them out, but. The idea that that's not regulated at all, uh, the point of a bartender, besides just bringing drink, is also they're legally supposed to be monitoring you to see if you're too drunk to drink, um, if you're a danger to yourself, um, and there's no real oversight of that when you are just grabbing your own drink and walking away. Um, so the question is going to be how that's enforced, and then I'm waiting to see what happens with delivery. I think that's going to be the next big step because some states allow it, some states don't. The idea that I could, you know, pop on Amazon, order a beer, and have it delivered by drone to my house in half an hour. I'm feeling, I'm feeling thirsty. Need a six pack, bring it. That, that's also something I think we're looking at. Again, it's a, a total patchwork of states, as, as Teresa mentioned earlier, in terms of distribution. Um, some states you're, you're allowed to have beer delivered by Amazon in Whole Foods, and some states there's no way it's going to get through. Um, so I think that's going to be the next the next big frontier is going to be politics. Uh, I'd also say that uh, while you were from Wisconsin and um, you know uh, from what I'm told, beer is so heavily regulated in Wisconsin, it's such a central, integral part of the state that even when they 
media, please talk to my forget what city, and had some, some connection to here. <laughs> Thank you very much. Listen to the Fusebox radio broadcast via iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Podcast Attic, and your other favorite podcast players. Check out the Fusebox Radio's official website for our latest episodes, events, and more at FuseboxRadioOnline.com. You can also visit us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Fusebox Radio Show, Twitter at Twitter.com slash Fusebox Radio, and Instagram at Instagram.com slash Fusebox Radio. Feel free to contact us at FuseboxRadio at gmail.com to submit music for airplay consideration, 